Chapter Six of the Journal of a Tour to the Hebrides with Samuel Johnson by James Boswell. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Anthony Ogus. Wednesday, twenty fifth August. We got up between seven and eight and found Mr. Boyd in the dining room with tea and coffee before him to give us breakfast. We were in an admirable humour. Lady Errol had given each of us a copy of an ode by Beattie on the birth of her son, Lord Hay. Mr. Boyd asked Dr. Johnson how he liked it. Dr. Johnson, who did not admire it, got off very well by taking it out and reading the second and third standards of it with much melody. This, without his saying a word, pleased Mr. Boyd. He observed, however, to Dr. Johnson, that the expression as to the family of Errol a thousand years have seen it shine, compared with what went before, was an anticlimax, and it would have been better, ages have seen, etc. Dr. Johnson said, So great a number as a thousand is better, dolus latat in universalibus. Ages might be only two ages. He talked of the advantage of keeping up the connections of relationship, which produce much kindness. Every man, said he, who comes into the world has need of friends if he has to get them for himself half his life is spent before his merit is known relations are a man's ready friends who support him when a man is in real distress he flies into the arms of his relations an old lawyer who had much experience in making wills told me that after people had deliberated long and thoughts of many for their executors they settled at last by fixing on their relations. This shows the universality of the principle. I regretted the decay of respect for men of family, and that an abob now would carry an election from them. Johnson. Why, sir, the abob will carry it by means of his wealth in a country where money is highly valued, as it must be where nothing can be had without money. But if it comes to personal preference, the man of family will always carry it. There is generally a scoundrelism about a low man. Mr. Boyd said that was a good ism. I said I believed mankind were happier in the ancient feudal state of subordination than they are in the modern state of independency. Johnson, to be sure, the chief was, but we must think of the number of individuals. That they were less happy seems plain for that state from which all escape as soon as they can, and to which none return after they have left it, must be less happy. And this is the case with the state of dependence on a chief or great man. I mentioned the happiness of the French in their subordination by the reciprocal benevolence and attachment between the great and those in lower rank. Mr. Boyd gave us an instance of their gentlemanly spirit. An old Chevalier de Malte, of ancient noblesse, but in low circumstances, was in a coffee-house in Paris, where was Julien, the great manufacturer at the Gobelin, of the fine tapestry, so much distinguished both for the figures and the colours. The Chevalier's carriage was very old. Says Julien, with a plebeian insolence, I think, sir, you had better have your carriage new-painted. The Chevalier looked at him with indignant contempt, and answered, Well, sir, you may take it home and dye it. All the coffee-house rejoiced at Julien's confusion. We set out about nine. 
Dr. Johnson was curious to see one of those structures which northern antiquarians call a druid's temple. I had a recollection of one at Strickland, which I had seen fifteen years ago. So we went four miles out of our road, after passing Old Deer, and went thither. Mr. Fraser, the proprietor, was at home, and showed it to us. But I had augmented it in my mind, for all that remains is two stones set up on end, with a long one laid upon them, as was usual, and one stone at a little distance from them. That stone was the capital one of the circle which surrounded what now remains. Mr. Fraser was very hospitable. There was a fair at Stricken, and he had several of his neighbours from it at dinner. One of them, Dr. Fraser, who had been in the army, remembered to have seen Dr. Johnson as a lecture on experimental philosophy at Litchfield. The doctor recollected being at the lecture, and he was surprised to find here somebody who knew him. Mr. Fraser sent a servant to conduct us by a short passage into the high road. I observed to Dr. Johnson that I had a most disagreeable notion of the life of country gentlemen, that I left Mr. Fraser just now as one leaves a prisoner in a jail. Dr. Johnson said that I was right in thinking them unhappy for that they had not enough to keep their minds in motion. I started a thought this afternoon which amused us a great part of the way. If, said I, our club should come and set up in St Andrews as a college to teach all that each of us can in the several departments of learning and taste, we should rebuild the city, we should draw a wonderful concourse of students. Dr Johnson entered fully into the spirit of this project. We immediately fell to distributing the offices. I was to teach civil and Scotch law, Burke politics and eloquence, Garrick the art of public speaking, Langton was to be our Grecian, Coleman our Latin professor, Nugent to teach physic, Lord Charlemont modern history, Beauclerk natural philosophy, Vesey Irish antiquities or Celtic learning, Jones oriental learning, Goldsmith poetry and ancient history, Chamier Commercial Politics, Reynolds Painting and the Arts which have beauty for their object, Chambers the Law of England. Dr. Johnson at first said, I'll trust theology to nobody but myself. But upon due consideration that Percy is a clergyman, it was agreed that Percy should teach practical divinity and British antiquities. Dr. Johnson himself logic, metaphysics and scholastic divinity. In this manner did we amuse ourselves, each suggesting and each varying or adding, till the whole was adjusted. Dr. Johnson said we only wanted a mathematician since Dyer died, who was a very good one, but as to everything else we should have a very capital university. We got at night to Banff. I sent Joseph on to Duff House, but Earl Fife was not at home, which I regretted much, as we should have had a very elegant reception from his lordship. We found here but an indifferent inn. Dr. Johnson wrote a long letter to Mrs. Thrale. I wondered to see him write so much so easily. He verified his own doctrine that a man may always write when he will set himself doggedly to it. Thursday, 26th August. We got a fresh chaise here, a very good one, and very good horses. We breakfasted at Cullen. They set down dried haddocks broiled, along with our tea. I ate one, but Dr. Johnson was disgusted by the sight of them, so they were removed. 
Cullen has a comfortable appearance, though but a very small town, and the houses mostly poor buildings. I called on Mr. Robertson, who has the charge of Lord Findlater's affairs, and was formerly Lord Montbodo's clerk, was three times in France with him, and translated Condamine's account of the savage girl, to which his lordship wrote a preface, containing several remarks of his own. Robertson said he did not believe so much as his lordship did, that it was plain to him the girl confounded what she imagined with what she remembered, that besides she perceived Condamine and Lord Monboddo forming theories, and she adapted her story to them. Dr. Johnson said, it is a pity to see Lord Monboddo publish such notions as he has done, a man of sense and of so much elegant learning. There will be little in a fool doing it. We should only laugh. But when a wise man does it, we are sorry. Other people have strange notions, but they conceal them. If they have tails, they hide them. But Monboddo is as jealous of his tail as a squirrel. I shall here put down some more remarks of Dr. Johnson's on Lord Monboddo, which were not made exactly at this time, but come in well from connection. He said he did not approve of a judge's calling himself Farmer Burnet, and going about with a little round hat. He laughed heartily at his lordship, saying he was an enthusiastical farmer. For, said he, what can he do in farming by his enthusiasm? Here, however, I think Dr. Johnson mistaken. He who wishes to be successful or happy ought to be enthusiastical, that is to say, very keen in all the occupations or diversions of life. An ordinary gentleman farmer will be satisfied with looking at his fields once or twice a day. An enthusiastical farmer will be constantly employed on them, will have his mind earnestly engaged, will talk perpetually of them. But Dr. Johnson has much of the Neil Admirari in smaller concerns, that survey of life which gave birth to his vanity of human wishes early sobered his mind. Besides, so great a mind as his cannot be moved by inferior objects. An elephant does not run and skip like lesser animals. Mr. Robertson sent a servant with us to show us through Lord Findlater's wood, by which our way was shortened, and we saw some part of his domain which is indeed admirably laid out. Dr. Johnson did not choose to walk through it. He always said that he was not come to Scotland to see fine places, of which there were enough in England, but wild objects, mountains, waterfalls, peculiar manners. In short, things which he had not seen before. I have a notion that he at no time has had much taste for rural beauties. I have myself very little. Dr. Johnson said there was nothing more contemptible than a country gentleman living beyond his income, and every year growing poorer and poorer. He spoke strongly of the influence which a man has by being rich. A man, said he, who keeps his money has in reality more use from it than he can have by spending it. I observed that this looked very like a paradox, but he explained it thus. If it were certain that a man would keep his money locked up for ever, to be sure he would have no influence. But as so many want money, and he has the power of giving it, and they know not but, but by gaining his favour they may obtain it, the rich man will always have the greatest influence. He again who lavishes his money is laughed at as foolish, and in a great degree with justice, 
considering how much is spent from vanity. Even those who partake of a man's hospitality have but a transient kindness for him. If he has not the command of money, people know he cannot help them if he would, whereas the rich man always can if he will, and for the chance of that will have much weight. Boswell. But philosophers and satirists have all treated a miser as contemptible. Johnson. He is so philosophically, but not in the practice of life. Boswell. Let me see now. I do not know the instances of misers in England so as to examine into their influence. Johnson. We have had few misers in England. Boswell. There was Lowther. Johnson. Why, sir, Lowther, by keeping his money, had the command of the county which the family has now lost by spending it. I take it he lent a great deal, and that is the way to have influence, and yet preserve one's wealth. A man may lend his money upon very good security, and yet have his debtor much under his power. Boswell. No doubt, sir, he can always distress him for the money, as no man borrows who is able to pay on demand quite conveniently. We dined at Elgin and saw the noble ruins of the cathedral. Though it rained much, Dr. Johnson examined them with the most patient attention. He could not here feel any abhorrence at the Scottish reformers, for he had been told by Lord Hales that it was destroyed before the Reformation by the Lord of Badenoch, who had a quarrel with the bishop. The bishop's house and those of the other clergy, which are still pretty entire, do not seem to have been proportioned to the magnificence of the cathedral, which has been of great extent and had very fine carved work. The ground within the walls of the cathedral is employed as a burying place. The family of Gordon have their vault here, but it has nothing grand. We pass Gordon Castle this forenoon, which has a princely appearance. Fochabers, the neighbouring village, is a poor place, many of the houses being ruinous, but it is remarkable they have in general orchards well stored with apple-trees. Elgin has what in England are called piazzas, that run in many places on each side of the street. It must have been a much better place formerly. Probably it had piazzas all along the town, as I have seen at Bologna. I approved much of such structures in a town, on account of their conveniency in wet weather. Dr. Johnson disapproved of them, because, said he, it makes the understory of a house very dark, which greatly overbalances the conveniency when it is considered how small a part of the year it rains, how few are usually in the street at such times, that many who are might as well be at home, and the little that people suffer, supposing them to be as much wet as they commonly are in walking a street. We fared but ill at our inn here, and Dr. Johnson said this was the first time he had seen a dinner in Scotland that he could not eat. In the afternoon we drove over the very heath where Macbeth met the witches, according to tradition. Dr. Johnson again solemnly repeated, How far is it called to forers? What are these, so withered and so wild in their attire, that look not like the inhabitants of the earth, and yet are on he repeated a good deal more of Macbeth. His recitation was grand and affecting, and as Sir Joshua Reynolds has observed to me, had no more tone than it should have. It was the better for it. 
He then parodied the all-hail of the witches to Macbeth, addressing himself to me. I had purchased some land called Dalblair, and as in Scotland it is customary to distinguish landed men by the name of their estates, I had thus two titles, Dalblair and young Auchinleck. So my friend, in imitation of all hail Macbeth, hail to the Thane of Cawdor, condescended to amuse himself with uttering, All hail, dull Blair, hail to thee, laird of Auchinleck. We got to Forres at night, and found an admirable inn, in which Dr. Johnson was pleased to meet with the landlord, who styled himself Wine-Cooper from London. Friday, 27th August it was dark when we came to Forres last night, so we did not see what is called King Duncan's Monument. I shall now mark some gleanings of Dr. Johnson's conversation. I spoke of Leonidas, and said there were some good passages in it. Johnson, why, you must seek for them. He said, Paul Whitehead's manners was a poor performance. Speaking of Derrick, he told me he had a kindness for him, and had often said that if his letters had been written by one of a more established name, they would have been thought very pretty letters. This morning I introduced the subject of the origin of evil. Johnson. Moral evil is occasioned by free will, which implies choice between good and evil. With all the evil that there is, there is no man but would rather be a free agent than a mere machine without the evil and what is best for each individual must be best for the whole. If a man would rather be the machine, I cannot argue with him. He is different from being from me. Boswell. A man as a machine may have agreeable sensations. For instance, he may have pleasure in music. Johnson. No, sir, he cannot have pleasure in music, at least no power of producing music, for he who can produce music may let it alone. He who can play upon a fiddle may break it. Such a man is not a machine. This reasoning satisfied me. It is certain there cannot be a free agent unless there is the power of being evil as well as good. We must take the inherent possibilities of things into consideration in our reasonings or conjectures concerning the works of God. We came to Nairn to breakfast. Though a county town and a royal borough, it is a miserable place. Over the room where we sat, a girl was spinning wool with a great wheel, and singing an earth song. I'll warrant you, said Dr. Johnson, one of the songs of Ossian. He then repeated these lines. Verse sweetens toil, however rude the sound. All at her work the village maiden sings. Nor, while she turns the giddy wheel around, revolves the sad vicissitude of things. I thought I had heard these lines before. Johnson. I fancy not, sir, for they are in a detached poem, the name of which I do not remember, written by one Gifford, a parson. I expected Mr. Kenneth Macaulay, the minister of Calder, who published the history of St. Kilda, a book which Dr. Johnson liked, would have met us here, as I had written to him from Aberdeen but I received a letter from him telling me that he could not leave home, as he was to administer the sacrament the following Sunday, and earnestly requesting to see us as his manse. We'll go, said Dr. Johnson, which we accordingly did. Mrs. Macaulay received us, and told us her husband was in the church distributing tokens. We arrived between twelve and one o'clock, 
and it was near three before he came to us. Dr. Johnson thanked him for his book, and said, It was a very pretty piece of topography. Macaulay did not seem much to mind the compliment. From his conversation, Dr. Johnson was persuaded that he had not written the book which goes under his name. I myself always suspected so, and I have been told it was written by the learned Dr. John Macpherson of Skye from the materials collected by Macaulay. Dr. Johnson said privately to me, There is a combination in it of which Macaulay is not capable. However, he was exceedingly hospitable, and as he obligingly promised us a route for our tour through the Western Isles, we agreed to stay with him all night. After dinner we walked to the old castle of Calder, pronounced Corder, the thane of Corder's seat. I was sorry that my friend, this prosperous gentleman, was not there. The old tower must be of great antiquity. There is a drawbridge which has been a moat, and an ancient court. There is a hawthorn tree which rises like a wooden pillar through the rooms of the castle, for by a strange conceit the walls have been built round it. The thickness of the walls, the small slaunting windows, and a great iron door at the entrance on the second storey as you ascend the stairs, all indicate the rude times in which this castle was erected. There were here some large, venerable trees. I was afraid of a quarrel between Dr. Johnson and Mr. Macaulay, who talked slightingly of the lower English clergy. The doctor gave him a frowning look and said, "'This is a day of novelties.' I have seen old trees in Scotland, and I have heard the English clergy treated with disrespect. I dreaded that a whole evening at Calder Mance would be heavy. However, Mr. Grant, an intelligent and well-bred minister in the neighbourhood, was there and assisted us by his conversation. Dr. Johnson, talking of hereditary occupations in the Highlands, said, There is no harm in such a custom as this, but it is wrong to enforce it and oblige a man to be a tailor or a smith, because his father has been one. This custom, however, is not peculiar to our highlands. It is well known that in India a similar practice prevails. Mr. Macaulay began a rhapsody against creeds and confessions. Dr. Johnson showed that what he called imposition was only a voluntary declaration of agreement in certain articles of faith, which a church has a right to require, just as any other society can insist on certain rules being observed by its members. Nobody is compelled to be of the church, as nobody is compelled to enter into a society. This was a very clear and just view of the subject, but Macaulay could not be driven out of his track. Dr. Johnson said, Sir, you are bigot to laxness. Mr. Macaulay and I laid the map of Scotland before us, and he pointed out a route for us from Inverness by Fort Augustus to Glenelg, Skye, Mull, Icomkill, Lorne and Inverary, which I wrote down. As my father was to begin the northern circuit about the 18th of September, it was necessary for us either to make our tour with great expedition, so as to get to Auchinleck before he set out, or to protract it so as not to be there till his return, which would be about the 10th of October. By Macaulay's calculation, we were not to land in Lawn till the 20th of September. I thought that the interruptions by bad days, or by occasional excursions, might make it ten days later, and I thought too that we might perhaps go to Benbecula and visit Clan Ranald, which would take a week of itself. 
Dr. Johnson went up with Mr. Grant to the library, which consisted of a tolerable collection. But the doctor thought it rather a lady's library, with some Latin books in it by chance, than the library of a clergyman. It had only two of the Latin fathers, and one of the Greek fathers in Latin. I doubted whether Dr. Johnson would be present at a Presbyterian prayer. I told Mr. Macaulay so, and said that the doctor might sit in the library while we were at family worship. Mr. Macaulay said he would omit it rather than give Dr. Johnson offence, but I would by no means agree that an excess of politeness, even to so great a man, should prevent what I esteem as one of the best pious regulations. I know nothing more beneficial, more comfortable, more agreeable, than that the little societies of each family should regularly assemble and unite in praise and prayer to our Heavenly Father, from whom we daily receive so much good, and may hope for more in a higher state of existence. I mentioned to Dr. Johnson the over-delicate scrupulosity of our host. He said he had no objection to hear the prayer. This was a pleasing surprise to me, for he refused to go and hear Principal Robertson's preach. "'I will hear him,' said he, "'if he will get up into a tree and preach, "'but I will not give a sanction by my presence "'to a Presbyterian assembly.' Mr. Grant having prayed, Dr. Johnson said his prayer was a very good one, but objected to his not having introduced the Lord's Prayer. He told us that an Italian of some note in London said once to him, we have in our service a prayer called the Pater Noster, which is a very fine composition. I wonder who is the author it. A singular instance of ignorance in a man of some literature and general inquiry. End of section 6